0: episode 256 village life and the jewish feast of israel it's the year 1718 bc a man named joseph is born in bethlehem he would grow up in bethlehem as a child until he moves north to nazareth west of galilee we don't know why he moves there maybe it's political unrest maybe financial hardship but he ends up spending most of his teen years or more in nazareth a small town 20-ish miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Though Nazareth was distant and in the hills, it was fertile. Josephus describes this region as the following. Here is Josephus' quote. The land is rich everywhere, in soil and pasturage. It produces such variety of trees that even the most indolent are tempted. To devote themselves to agriculture, In fact, every inch of the soil has been cultivated by the inhabitants. So Josephus loved the land. He thought the land around, you know, this valley was pretty tremendously fertile. And maybe that's why Joseph ends up here. Just over the ridge from Nazareth is the famed Jezreel Valley and the Valley of Megiddo, which will later be called Armageddon. This is the battlefield of the War of the Ages fought in Revelation, I imagine Jesus walking this ridge with visions of the future coursing his thoughts. This is the place where over 200 million man army will assemble to fight. And with a word, he will destroy it. It was Napoleon, the great military genius, who wrote the following about the, about the field of Megiddo. Never had he seen a battlefield so vast. Quote, this is the most natural battlefield on the whole earth all the armies of the world can maneuver their forces on this vast plain jesus would grow up here isolated from the world and protected yet only miles from the center of the northern israel the sea of galilee is teeming with towns and villages along the primary north south route through israel the towns founded by the greeks are now very prosperous there and worthy of visits by jerusalem tax collectors Now even the Sea of Galilee and some of its towns are are part of a Roman uh, base of operations. Nazareans and even those from the Galilee, they would have a distinct Aramaic dialect at the time. It would sound crude and uncultured to those who were educated in the Greek. They were considered to be unsophisticated rustics by those from Jerusalem. But at the same time, being in the mountains and away from it all, what a great place to hide the Messiah. The center of culture in Nazareth was religion. Everything was religious in this culture. Prayers covered every corner of society, and the center of the village would be a synagogue or organized religious structure. And from here, the Sabbath would be called on Friday night. A strong foundation of religion was everywhere. This created an excellent foundation for education, Unless it became too religious. We'll learn later, religion without relationship is just the law. But life was filled with the word. And in the next episode, we'll cover the life of the mind and the education in this time. And the power of the word that is as transforming individuals um, who grow up in this society. And it does, it prepares people's hearts for the Messiahs to come. Typically, homes were made of mud brick and were very rudimentary um, in the city of Nazareth. There was no need for stone structures in the villages. After all, brick was too expensive. As for the family, the father was the head of the house. What he said goes. It was a male-dominated society with slavery as a legal means, though it wasn't very common in Israel. Women didn't have rights as we understand them today, yet this is, will surprise us as we see how Jesus treated women with honor and respect. And this is where I have to tell an interesting account um, about uh, marriage, um, adultery, and you know, divorce in this time. Under the law, if a man's wife found no favor in his eyes because he had found some indecency in her, a husband can give her a bill of divorce. If the indecency stopped short of adultery, the marriage might simply be dissolved without both parties uh, remaining, being free to remarry. If a wife was suspected of adultery, however, a priest could conduct a trial by an ordeal. And I find this ordeal fascinating. And a suspected woman was forced to drink a bitter potion. If she became sick, she was considered guilty and was stoned or otherwise put to death. If she showed no ill effects, she was presumed innocent and returned to her husband. Isn't it fascinating? what's the did you kind of wonder what the bitter potion was? Um, and how do they measure that? This is the type of uh, uh, very complex legal system um, and law that they had created in Israel. Family roles were gender specific, with men working the fields or in a trade, with the a, a woman walking in a home, spinning clothes, making bread, caring for the children. Life wasn't easy back then, though. In our modern world, we dismiss the challenges of rural ancient life as we learn about the kings and their palaces. But our world and its com- context is so out of proportion with history. I remember in the early '80s visiting my World War II veteran grandfather, and he talked about the unbelievable store nearby that had everything. It was this new store. He no longer had to go to cert- He no longer had to grow certain crops or visit many different stores to get what he needed. He raved about it, and I was this young, annoyed kid by it because it seemed to be all he talked about. But the truth was that Walmart and a giant retail store was a relatively new thing in the 70s and 80s. It's interesting to see movies about missionaries in Africa. There's always a poignant scene where, where, you know, one's on the phone talking to one's on the phone at a giant grocery store or a Walmart in the United States, and they're talking to someone in a poor village in Africa. Or they're not talking on the phone, or they're just showing the flashbacks of um, absolute poverty and absolute prosperity. And, and it's a—it's almost a, a nice picture of the ages, how you can almost flip back and forth. The stark realities are obvious in these scenes. Um, and we have to, when we go through the New Testament, we've got to understand the village life is poor, and that they have to provide for themselves, and it's hard. And if it wasn't hard enough, we've got to see the context of what Herod has done and the Romans to them. These guys in the villages, unless they were rich, they had to make their own clothes or trade for them. They had to make or trade for everything they wore or ate. They had to work in the fields, and what was left after their taxes was miserable. The issue in rural Israel was oppression and excessive taxation. Secular taxes were reasonable at close to 25%. And that's kind of the standard Roman rule across the board. But the Roman taxation was, was farmed out. So they would, they would find guys, and those are the tax collectors, and they're the ones that are like, get me my 25%. If he collected 50, the tax collector got to keep 25 And that was the corruption of it all. But it worked for Rome, not for the people. And that's why the tax collectors were so hated. And that's why they're, you know, later on they're like, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. I mean, they actually have their own bucket of evil, is the tax collectors, because they oppress their own people. Then there was the tithe of 10%, which should be fine. But on top of this was the temple taxes, the sacrifices, the first-fruits taxes, and the first-fruit livestock tax. On top of this, Herod could honestly take over take whatever he wanted. And he, when he was stuck in the middle of the Roman civil wars, he did. He took whatever he wanted. he needed to enrich himself and to stay in power. The Romans, they could take whatever they wanted as well. And that was the problem with rural life back then. The power of census is the power to destroy and the power to tax. And when Caesar issued a census, everyone moaned because Rome wanted more. The citizens cried out of oppression due to taxes and abuse. But we'll learn later that Jesus was more interested in their sin and their heart condition than their financial well-being. When the shofar blasted on Friday night, Everyone would make their way to the synagogue for prayer, and eventually return home, for no work was allowed for an entire 24 hours, in the house or out. Rest was demanded, in family life and relaxation was required on the Sabbath, which was Friday night to Saturday night, not Sunday as we look at it today. Other times of rest or celebration were common in Israel as the feast centered around the harvest seasons and the religious holidays dominating their lives. And as I dug into the religious feast of Israel, their symbolism astounds me. And I'm mean, going to kind of almost side rail a couple times on this episode, but um, it's, it's really powerful. And all these times that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, they're for a reason. Right? And they're, they're requirements of the law. And as he does it, he actually fulfills a greater purpose. And the messages that he delivers within the context of the feast and the reason why he's in Jerusalem or other areas at feast, those messages um, actually state that he is you know, the, the hidden meaning behind it. Any religious person in Israel at the time would take three pilgrimages a year, according to Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the festival on leavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And that's Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17. You know, that's the commandment. Jesus would have fulfilled it. Joseph and Mary and Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem during these times. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in the spring is Passover, which we know from the time of Moses. Jesus would celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, and we know for sure he would go, not that he doesn't, you know, all of his life, but we actually have events in John 2 and 12. The Spring Summer Festival of Weeks, or Shavuot, celebrates the Spring wheat harvest, and the giving of the Torah by God. This festival will later be called a Pentecost. Tabernacles celebrates the time in the wilderness where the people build temporary homes, which is in the fall. Jesus would celebrate Tabernacles, and he would actually specifically be in Jerusalem as quoted in John 5 and John 7. Each of the festivals are for a reason and serve a purpose. In addition, each of them has a prophetic fulfillment. We'll end the episode with just one of them, and, and I'll probably spend a lot more time on it just because I'm amazed by it. There are other feasts like first fruits, trumpets, atonement. There's a secular holiday, Hanukkah, which celebrates the oil from the Maccabee Rebellion. Jesus actually celebrated this event, though it's not the religious holiday, but the secular holiday, and he, and he goes to it in John 10. It's interesting to me how we have our U.S. holidays, New Year's Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Labor Day, July 4th. Each of these holidays have personal and historical meanings. Of course, Christmas is for Christ's birth, though the date might be off. Yet each of these Jewish holidays in the time of Jesus, it has this amazing biblical meaning and purpose. And some would even suggest a time of personal connection with God. And in the context of these feasts, we'll try to not miss the hidden messages and how Jesus gets purposefully sacrilegious to the religious in his terminology and its verbiage when he walks on the scene at the time of tabernacles or at the time of Passover, and declaring aloud those truths of who he is in that season. To conclude this episode a Message to Kings, let's cover just one of the feast and its greater fulfillment. Remember that law of first mention? Whenever the first time a word is defined in the Bible, its fulfillment of the definition will continue and be applied in the same way and even grow in definition, right? Well, Passover still gets a greater defining, um, as Jesus walks on the scene. Remember Passover, the final curse of the firstborn in Egypt. Moses instructed that people to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost to prevent the angel of death from entering their home. God delivered them from the angel of death in 400 years of slavery. God showed his miraculous power over darkness and oppression. He affirmed his covenants with his people and he renewed and commemorated a faith for generations. This is what happens at Passover. The people of faith were to remember this holiday and to conduct a pilgrimage and have faith and believe and sprinkle and celebrate the blood of the covenant on their hearts. Jesus would visit Jerusalem all through his life to celebrate the Passover. He would witness the sacrifices, knowing one day, one Passover, he would be the final lamb. At just the right time, to not release the people from oppression of Rome and heavy taxation, but sin and man's addiction to darkness. And the timing of his death was to be the exact orchestrated timing of the Passover and the true fulfillment of the Passover for all time. Not just in symbolism, but in the prescribed order set aside by God to fulfill the atonement forever. To those who believe and I am getting fired up. So, um, it, it, the Bible does say, um, the righteous shall be bold like a lion. And, uh, and I do feel a boldness coming over me. Romans 5, 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to crush sin and the works of the devil underfoot. He takes away your sin, and he is our only way to salvation. Hebrews 10.4 It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire. Nor were you pleased with them, though you were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we are made holy through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus once and for all. Jesus will come to fulfill the law, establish a new covenant with his people. And it starts at the forgiveness of sins at the cross. And this is where our Christian walk starts, on our knees asking Jesus to forgive our sins. Do you carry any sin and covetousness in your heart? If so, repent, surrender your life to God, and watch how he replaces your sin. If you hate, he will give you love. If you carry anxiety, he will give you peace. If you covet and sin greatly, he will give you self-control. If it's greed, a godly prosperity. Surrender and watch God move in your life. The Passover lamb has paid the price once and for all. And if you have never repented, do so now. Don't waste time. If you have slipped away and continue to slip away, keep repenting until he comes to your rescue and sets you free. He will. It's promised. It's why he's called a savior. I encourage everyone to get right with God because he desires everyone to be right with him. Get on your knees and allow him to sprinkle the doorpost of your heart with his blood and set you free. And I pray for everyone on this program that they feel the presence and power of God. And if there's anything on right in their hearts, God will set them free and set them on the right path. I pray for a spirit of repentance as we head into the power of the Word in the next episode. May God move in your hearts, for you are He is raising up many who know His ways and His story, and love the accounts of the Bible and those who believe. I love what Daniel said about future believers. It is the New King James Version, Daniel eleven thirty two. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Uh, we, we took a Oh, man, it was a long road trip. We drove from Seattle, Washington, um, all the way back to Bentonville, Arkansas. We had to go back for a memorial service. And um, on the way home, so we drove back home through Arizona, Texas, California. And um, we're in Prescott, Arizona. And I was with my family. And for some reason, we end up at this RV park. And this guy comes. We're walking down the road, and this guy comes to me. His name's Ryan, and he just wants to talk. And I felt something come over me, and I just wanted to tell him all about Jesus. And uh, and before that, he was telling me how he was hurting and how he had like, I don't know, he was, was a motocross guy, and he had so many accidents and so many broken bones. It was crazy. Um, and something came over me that I I told him all about Jesus. And, and I felt like I should pray for him, um, that God would heal him. And, and I prayed for him, nothing happened, and, and and I continued to spend time with him. And, you know, like, we are to be bold like lions. And, and if the Bible says we're to carry out great exploits, then we shall have faith to do it, right? So I don't know if Ryan was not healed there or he was healed later. Um, but, I, but I pray that he was, that that God touches him, and he transforms him, um, and he becomes a born-again believer. Um, as I shared with them on a long road trip across the United States, um, we are to do great exploits. And I pray that over us, that that we are bold like lions, and we can carry out great exploits in the name of Jesus. Even Jesus commanded us to do the impossible in the Great Commission. Check out Mark's and, Great Commission, Mark sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes and with their own bare hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick and they will get well. How about John 14? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Did he really say greater works? If so, I'm falling short. Are you? I played soccer all through high school and a few years in college. There was a statement when, you're, when you weren't playing well, they would say, Get your head in the game. And that's how I feel right now. Some of us need to wake up and turn off the news and quit spending time with politics and pray when you're supposed to pray, but make sure you're taking in more of Jesus than the news and the media and even politics. And believe, just believe. That's why we're called believers, because we should have no doubt and anxiety in our lives. Uh, A friend of mine um, and myself, we did a a three days uh, news and media fast, and even politics. We we did this because we felt like there was just too much out there, and it was consuming our thoughts and distracting us. Um, It's not a bad idea for people out there. and Just make sure you spend more time with Jesus than the other things. Make sure you watch what you're consuming, right? Our faith is founded in God and his word. Repent, I beg you, of your sin. Do not waste time. Ask Jesus into your heart. For 1 John 4:4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world.